Welcome to the Mike Bell Real Estate Show. Mike is one of the nation's top realtors and is highly regarded as an authority in residential real estate sales. Mike Bell has nothing to sell but great wisdom. You're going to love this show. Now, here's Mike Bell. We're live, and this is Mike. Welcome to my real estate show. Our topic today is the most common misconceptions when buying or selling a house. We're here in Pasadena with real estate attorney, Otta Katz. First off, a little business we need to burn through. You're listening to the Mike Bell Real Estate Show on Talk Zone. We're here in sunny Pasadena, and I'm a licensed California real estate broker and have been selling houses for 19 years. Uh, someone in my office shared with me that I'm ranked in the top 1% in sales volume and number of people I've helped. So I, I just share that just because I'd like my listeners to think that I know a little bit about the topic. We're you can reach us during the show at 888-GO-FOR-IT, 888-GO-FOR-IT. That's 888-463-6748, 888-463-6748. And my personal cell is 888-401-1555. Again, my personal cell phone after the show. Please give me a call at 888-401-1555. My email is mikebell at kw.com. My website is themikebellteam.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. There's a ton of real estate portals out there. You can find me there very easily. And, hey, my mom is hooked onto the show, so here's my shout-out to my mom. Hi, Mom. I love you. All right. Today, my guest is Ada Katz, and she is a real estate attorney based in San Marino, California. She specializes in real estate law, uh, landlord, tenant law, contract-related disputes, and uh, – you're a litigator. You, I read in your bio you like to try to find amicable re- resolutions before you actually go to litigation. Absolutely, that should it. be the that should be the goal of any litigator to try to resolve a problem before it has to go to litigation. Thank you for coming today. I know you're a very busy litigator. Uh, you've got a very busy schedule, and I, I appreciate you coming. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, so. Thinking about how we met, we met at probably one of these lawyer functions that I get invited to, right? Because I yeah. do a lot of probates and trusts. And um, we probably met at a Pasadena Bar Association real estate section meeting. They've got lots of those. Yeah, those are fun. Well, they're kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on who you sit next to, but when I sit next to you, it's always fun. Oh, thank you, thank you. So. Um, how long have you been uh, practicing law, and what kind of fun cases are you working on? And I've been uh, doing this law thing for about 15 years, mm-hmm. a little more. I think my math's off. Um, primarily in the last oh, 10 years or so, focused almost exclusively on real estate-related um, litigation, Um I do a lot of commercial and residential landlord-tenant stuff, leases and mm-hmm. things like that. And I've worked on lots of lots of residential purchase and sale agreements um, that have maybe gone not the way that the parties wanted them to go and helped us either get them on track or, you know, advocate for in the best interest of my client. You know, what I found, with, and I work with a lot of attorneys, a lot of attorneys have kind of found me um, – there's two kinds of attorneys. It seems like there's litigators and there's contract attorneys in real estate. Right. 
Uh, contract ones are basically the ones that are they'll, they'll put together contracts, lease agreements, things like that. But they don't go to court. They don't they don't go into court and fight stuff out. You do a little bit about the, uh, the contract stuff, but you you fight things. Oh, I go to out. court. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if need be, I will I will go to bat for my clients. I, I am a litigator by um, by training, by practice, by experience. Um, I I believe, especially in in the context of what we're talking about today, that sometimes as a litigator, having seen how deals fall out and some of the things that can go wrong in deals, um, you're in the best possible position to actually be able to avoid those um, misunderstandings and mistakes before they happen. Um, so make sure you've got an airtight uh, agreement and, and nothing can get misconstrued along the way. Well, we were going to talk about some of the biggest misconceptions in real estate and, and uh, some of these misconceptions cause a lot of problems and they escalate to a point where uh, maybe they burn through the real estate agents if they're involved, and it has to escalate to um, a buyer or seller's real estate attorney. And I thought this would be a perfect uh, opportunity for us to talk about what I've found and you've found to be some very common misconceptions and issues. That uh, And I think we're just going to go right into the basics. Um, and, and I think a lot of people think may find this kind of Odd or silly or maybe just too basic, but we were talking about in, in the in the beginning of any kind of lawsuit. What's the first thing that? Uh, what, what's the first thing you want to know uh, if there's going to be a, if there's some kind of a lawsuit? Um, you want to you want to know if obviously if, if the agency has been disclosed. If people know who their real estate yeah, agent is, absolutely, is. absolutely. Um, you know, one of the most basic things is, you know, who's your agent? Um, shockingly, sometimes there's some confusion about that, especially when one agent is representing both the buyer and the seller. Mm-hmm. Um, some people get confused about whose interest the agent is is representing. Um, and then there's also issues about, you know, even though you're one party's agent. You as an agent in the deal actually owe duties to all sides in terms of um, in terms of dealing fairly, et cetera. So, but yeah, you definitely the first thing you want to know is well, obviously, what's the problem? What went wrong? And secondly, second of all, um, who is your representative? Who's your fiduciary? Well, what is fiduciary? That's um, a pretty important word. Well, a fiduciary um, is an agent, and it's basically, uh, in this context, it's when um, a, an agent is someone who's licensed. Mm-hmm. In the state of California, you need a license to represent the interests of a principal, that is the actual buyer or seller, mm-hmm. in, um, in a transaction with third parties. And by law, an agent, a broker... Um, and I and I use those terms sort of interchangeably, but actually it's a little bit different. Yes. Um, and if you'd like, we can get into that. But uh, but basically, there are legal duties that are imposed on a fiduciary, um, on an agent that uh, we can you know we can go through. Um, but one of the biggest duties is the duty of loyalty, and that is to put the interests of the principal above um, their own interests and to do. Um, always, to always act in the best interests of the principal. Well, there's that, and I know there's a duty of trust, integrity, um, 
in all dealings. That's that the, the disclosure paperwork that we have is actually when I sit down with a buyer or a seller, the first document I give them is what's called an agency disclosure form. Right. And I explain to them it's it's a disclosure form. You're not agreeing to anything, but you are agreeing to sign this. You're that acknowledging you, that you understand what agency is, and it's actually spelled out in the civil code. Absolutely. I mean, in at least in the state of California, I think in most states, there's there's a lot of legislation that covers the rights and obligations of uh, parties to a, a, a real estate transaction, as, as well as the obligations of a broker in terms of their um, duties uh, to their principal, mm-hmm. either w- whether it be the seller or the buyer or both, and um, and to all parties in the transaction. So there's obviously the duty of loyalty. There's the duty of um, disclose disclosure, you're required to fully disclose all material facts mm-hmm. that may bear upon the transaction. There's the duty of confidentiality um, and uh, the duty to investigate mm-hmm. as well as a duty of reasonable care and diligence, which is a higher standard than just your everyday average Joe. You're a professional and you're held mm-hmm. to a professional standard within that community. And you're licensed by the state. But what's interesting right. is uh, as you're talking about this, we touched on dual agency. That's when the same agent or the, somebody in the broker, two agents in the same brokerage, but the, when they represent um, both buyer and seller. And it's always, to me, it's always been an, it's, it is definitely an inherent conflict of interest when you have your real estate agent representing both sides. And um, let's talk about that because some sure. agents give it the appearance that it's standard and routine. And they give you a piece of paper to sign, and uh, I think this is one of the most. Diff- this is one of the tough things about our industry, which I it causes a lot of issues uh, with allowing dual agency. Yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, there's definitely two schools of thought on dual agency. Um, you know, from uh, from a buyer's or a seller's standpoint, it's my personal view that um, you have to really really take seriously uh, the decision as as far as whether or not to enter into a dual agency situation because, um, it, like you said, it may be presented to you as something that's just really standard and, you know, just sign here, but it, it is a pretty serious decision that you make in terms of um, your deal. And when you enter into a dual agency situation, basically you've got the same agent representing both sides and, you know, you've got to you've got to wonder how that's going to impact the strength of your bargaining position when you're negotiating a price. For example, let's say you you've told your agent that you know this is your this is your offer, but you know you could probably go a little higher. Well, that information is not going to stay confidential if that agent is also representing the seller, who now knows that you know he could push you harder. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of permutations of how that how that could play out, but um, I think ultimately, in my opinion, it's probably, you know, if I were to buy or sell a house, I would probably not go with a dual agency. But again, a lot of people just, you know, sign on the dotted line wherever they're told to. And that's why I think it's good to talk about this. Well, I have a client I just interviewed for a listing a few days ago, and I I, I I know he's interviewing other agents, and I asked him, well, did any of the other agents tell them, tell you that they have a buyer for the transaction? And he said, yeah, actually, that was pretty appealing. So I explained to him, well, they've probably known the buyer a lot longer than they've known you. How do you think they can be an advocate for you and get you the highest price when maybe the buyer they've been working with, they've been working for months and months and months, and maybe they just want to get 
get this buyer into a deal, but how do you know you're actually going to get the best deal? Why don't you just let – if the buyer's going to buy it, they're going to buy it no matter who the agent is. Let them find another agent. Tell the agent you can't represent them. See what they say. I'm surprised they didn't they didn't uh, volunteer that. I usually volunteer that. I'm, I'm happy to volunteer that. Mm-hmm. I don't really like representing buyers on my own transactions. I'd, I believe that the seller deserves to know they have an advocate from the very beginning to the very end. And a lot of sellers go, oh, my gosh. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think – I think that it can even get a little confusing to the agent, you know, because you you it may be uh, on paper that you represent both parties and, and and you try to act equitably with everyone, but you know, just it's human nature, like you said, you know, you may know this the seller longer, or you may know the buyer longer, and it puts you in a really uncomfortable position. And you know, there's so many uh, good brokers out there. It's it's probably uh, in your best interest to have your own. A broker representing your own interest. You wouldn't hire an attorney to represent both the plaintiff and defendant. Well, can you? Absolutely not. That's Absolutely not. <laughs> that but would it, that would be a little uncomfortable. But the agent can do it, and that's that's the other thing about dual agency. It is actually uncomfortable as a broker. I used to do it a little bit, not too much, and I realize it's just it's it's actually it's, it's in my client's best interest. Of course, it's actually an easier transaction to deal with, um, and these transact transactions are very difficult. Okay. Everybody, a lot of people think that we all push the same buttons and the same result happens. I'm in the middle of it. I can, I, I, I guarantee all my fingers and my hands that that is not the case. There are, there are, the good agents can get you so much more money. And I see properties getting undersold so many times. And a lot of times after the, you close the transaction, you find out that the agent that was representing the seller represented the buyer. But it's, um, it's a very uh, frustrating thing to watch. Yeah, but and um, it is it is legal um, yep. in most states, including California. And um, the the caveat here is that a full disclosure needs to be made and needs to be made in writing and consent mm-hmm. by the parties in writing. So mm-hmm. um, you know, think think twice before signing that if that's not the way you want to go. Or just ask the question. Just right. ask the question. Ask the agent. Will you represent a buyer on the transaction? Right. And you'll 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 say so. Uh, we're going to be going into our first break. We're here with uh, Otta Katz. She is a real estate attorney, litigator. And thank you for listening to the show. This is a call-in show, so remember you can always call 888-GO-FOR-IT. And you're listening to the Mike Bell Real Estate Show. Back to the Mike Bell Real Estate Show on TalkZone.com. Here's Mike Bell. Welcome back to the show. We're here with Otta Katz, a real estate lawyer and litigator, and we're talking about some of the most common misconceptions in uh, when when somebody buys or sells real estate. This is based upon my experience, her experience. We sat down and actually just kind of went through some of the interesting things that could tie up real estate tie up a transaction or tie up or make it people scratch their heads and uh, I, I, we have some really good topics here but let's talk about so we talked about agency and who's representing who and let's talk about when an offer comes in uh, and this is for a buyer or seller to listen to everybody says oh you want the highest price but that's not really true. What's 
tell me about what, when you consult with your clients, you know, what's, what's the most important thing? Price? Terms? Um, no, absolutely. It's, it's a combination. It, it, it's, it's never just one thing. Obviously, price is a huge factor, but there are going to be other considerations and it really, it's, it's something that's unique to every deal. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you're going to have a seller that's, you know, planning a move out of town and needs to move by, you know, a certain date. So, um, the timing of the sale might be relevant. Um, you, there could be a situation where the seller is worried about all sorts of contingencies. So if the buyer comes yeah. in and says, well, I'll give you a lower price, but I'll give it to you all cash and no contingencies for financing, that's going to be, I mean, there's so many, uh, different moving parts to a deal. So yeah, it's, it's not just one thing and it really depends on what your priorities are. I mean, it can be that the house is unlendable because these days banks only want to lend on properties that are in, you know, for the most part, pretty good shape. But if you have a property where maybe it doesn't have a kitchen because somebody's gutted it and they ran out of money and now they need to sell the house, well, you really can't get a conventional loan on the house. So you can have an offer for 500000 for it, but you'll never – that buyer, if they have to get a, a conventional loan with, you know – they're never going to be able to close. It's just never going to happen. Right. So maybe you're just going to have to take somebody at 450 or 400 with cash. Right. But um, and I think with an experienced attorney or real estate agent, they'll be able to explain that rather than have you figure this out on day 40 when everybody's upset with each other. Right. Right. And you know, I mean, it's it's always uh, pretty easy when you've got a perfect house and a nice. Uh, you know, situation where everything is, is working as it should be. But, you know, it's those kinds of situations that you just described that, you know, require some creative out of the box thinking, uh, that you, you know, that, and, and you should definitely have some professionals, uh, in your court thinking along those lines. Well, and in, 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 you can, we could keep going with the terms. There's not only is the terms the, the, uh, escrow period or the period that we're, when we're going to close. It also has to do with contingencies, which we'll talk about. Right. It also has to do with what kind of financing they're going to get, if they can even get it. It also talks about uh, how much money the person's putting down. You can have somebody who's going to buy a house with 3% down, and they're right on the borderline of being able to get pre-approved. Uh, and so, you know, but, you know, they, they may not be able to close. Right. And they well, have the highest price. And the last thing you want to have happen is have a... A property that has to go back on the market. Absolutely, that's where the pre-approval letters come in. Where you, uh, you know, if you've got someone with an offer for a certain amount, let's say five hundred thousand dollars, and you've got someone that, that that doesn't have a pre-approval letter, and you've got someone with the same uh, or a slightly lesser amount, but they they're pre-approved, they've got good credit, and they're you know ready to go. Um, you've got to look at the likelihood of the deal closing. Um, I've seen transactions where I'm representing the seller. There's some very smart agents when they present an offer, they actually give the standard contract, but they also some, oftentimes they'll write a nice little letter. Sometimes it'd be a letter from the buyers to the seller saying how much they love their house. Right. And sometimes that's very important to a seller. Sometimes sellers just don't really care. They just want to get the most amount of money. But also in there is a pre-approval letter, something called proof of funds. So there'll be a, a bank statement. They'll usually scratch out the account numbers, and a lot of times they'll give uh, credit scores, and they'll just print up the one page of the of the credit rating that shows the three diff- three large credit bureaus and what their scores are, and they'll black out right. their social security number, 
But that gives a level of comfort because right. sellers want a level of comfort. They want to know that this is well. They should they should be consulted by their attorney or real estate agent to not only it's not all about price, but it's also about terms. It's also about level of comfort, ability to close. Absolutely, those are all very very key factors. And I'm sure that's you get a, a lot of phone calls. I'm sure from people going, "What do I do?" Because I can't get the advice from maybe the real estate agent, or maybe it doesn't make sense. Well, hopefully they would be able to at that yeah. stage where they're just entertaining offers. Hopefully uh, they don't need to consult with an attorney, um, and they're just relying on an excellent broker such as yourself um, to be able to guide them through all the pros and cons of of each offer that comes through the door. Um, if they've got multiple offers, then they're in good shape mm-hmm. <laughs> and they can pick and choose. And, you know, I think in this, in this uh, climate, that may be the case, but, um, but it really all depends on what's going on out there in the market. So one of the questions I get from people, from sellers is, um, or even in buyers, they, there's some, uh, maybe a notion that you, as a seller, you have, there's some law that says you have to respond, um, uh, in writing to an offer. Um, I don't think that's the case. No. Um, I, don't think I think so I think if you're a a buyer and you've written an offer and you haven't heard anything back from the seller, you can rest assured that it's not accepted. <laughs> Probably. Um, you know, you, you it's can, frustrating though because it you'd is. like to get a response. I mean, certainly common courtesy and professionalism yes. would would suggest that that a response, a rejection, or or something uh, counteroffer uh, would be made, but uh, absolutely not required by laws as last time I checked. Um, so we were talking about a little bit at lunch also, we were talking about the confidentiality, well, confidentiality agreements and the confidentiality of offers. Um, it comes as a shock to a lot of buyers when they find out that, well, you take it from there. If there's not a confidentiality agreement in place, what can happen to their offer? If you're a buyer and you're writing an offer on a property, what can the seller do? To your offer, if they um, they can basically let other prospective um, buyers know what they've got in hand, so that they could, you know, try to solicit offers above above your offer price. So, um, you so know, basically, use it to their advantage to create a bidding war. So, I if I have permission from my seller, I can say. Can I? We're trying to get five. Say we're trying to get five hundred fifty thousand dollars for a house, and I've got an offer for. At 550, I can take that offer and I can, I can tell everybody else, hey, we already got 550 for it so far, and try to drive the price up. Absolutely, Absolutely. and that's ethical, that's legal, unless unless there's a confidentiality agreement. So, I've never actually had a buyer's agent present an offer with a confidentiality agreement. Um, yeah, it's I, I don't think it's it's done. It's that a little often. weird, isn't it? I mean, I would be like, wait a minute. I can't use this to my advantage to that my seller, you know, my seller can't you know take advantage of this if they wanted to. I, I can't disclose this to anybody. Uh, yeah, it would be unusual. It would be unusual. I mean, basically, as a, as a seller, a seller's agent, um, I think that's done fairly commonly when you've got multiple offers. Yeah, and that's the that's actually the we go back to fiduciary. That's the duty of the listing agent or the selling agent. Is to get it's really to get the most amount of money, and the most ethical way of doing it. But they're supposed to. Uh, that's this kind of part of part and parcel of how you get the, you know, 
get your client the price they want. Absolutely. Or the best price, right? And actually, as a seller's agent, you've got to bring all offers to, uh, to your client. That's your, your legal obligation to, to convey all offers. Let's talk about that because that's something that when I write offers, I've had this situation where I've written offers after uh, they've accepted somebody else's offer. And I've actually had the agent quite a bit of time say, I'm not gonna, I don't need to present it because we're already in escrow. We already have a contract. And I'm in this situation where I have to explain to them, no, um, you have to present all offers right. until the day it closes. Right. Because anything can happen. Right. And you need to know as a seller, you need to know that there's other offers on the property. So, um, absolutely. I'd also just like to say just, um, what I may have said in the, I I should have probably mentioned in the beginning of this is that, um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, uh, giving legal advice. These are just my opinions. And, um, yeah. I, I would encourage if, if anyone who's listening, if they have a legal issue, a question, even if it's, if it's something we've covered uh, or are going to cover in this um, show, to double check it um, with a, a licensed attorney in their state and um, you know follow the advice of their chosen attorney and not to rely on uh, – Talk show advice um, for for serious legal issues. Yeah, don't don't listen to me. Uh, <laughs> that's my that's my disclaimer. Well, a lot of this stuff can get really uh, taken care of if you have a really good, competent real estate agent. Because to me, a lot of this is very basic. Uh, to a lot of agents, it's not. Unfortunately, it's just too bad. Most agents don't sell that much. Most agents aren't in the business that long. Um, so you have to be careful about picking. Most agents, you have to be careful with picking the right attorneys, too. I mean, you're a specialist in real estate litigation and contracts and landlord-tenant disputes. That's your specialty. I would not think to hire you for a medical malpractice lawsuit. Although I have had some med mal <laughs> experience <laughs> way back when. But I wouldn't. But no, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You've got you've to um, get someone who has experience, who has been through these um transactions many, many times, and who knows what they're doing, absolutely. Well, this stuff, it comes up quite a bit. All the stuff that we've actually talked about comes up quite a bit, um, and it's and it's frustrating, so I'm glad we're doing the show about it. So um, so let's talk about multiple offers. Uh, regard, say you're on the buyer's side. It doesn't matter if you're on the buyer's side or the seller's side. There's multiple offers on a property. What's the proper way to to handle this? Um, well, I mean, from there's a lot of ways to do it, but yeah, I mean, from a strategic standpoint, as as a buyer, as someone who wants the property, and you know that there's multiple offers going on, you need to sit down and write the strongest possible offer um, that that you can write, because um, you know sometimes sometimes if there aren't multiple offers and it's a it's a weak um, seller's market, then uh, and it's a buyer's market, then you can sort of start low and see where you go. But when there's multiple offers, you know, you, you want to potentially even start with the asking price and then, you know, go up from there. Um, and like you said, you know, present it with a pre-approval letter and, you know, all the goodies that go along with it and make, make a solid offer. I always give advice to my clients to write an offer for what you think the house is worth. And for the most part, you can almost throw away the asking price. We were talking about uh, my house that I bought 11 years ago. They were asking three hundred and ten thousand dollars for, and I offered four twenty-five. 
there were people that thought I was completely nuts. I found out later that there were 15 offers on the house. Five of them were over 400000 And to me, I just took my advice and said, to me, they, the agent underpriced it. Sure, I'd love to get it for 310 350 360 but you know what? I never would have gotten it. So I bid 425 and I beat out somebody by uh, four grand. Yeah, I mean, that's really smart. You want an agent that does their homework, that knows what the market price is. Well, this has gone fast. We're rolling into our second commercial. You're here on the Mike Bell Real Estate Show. We're here with Otta Katz, a real estate attorney and litigator, and we're going to be right back. Let's get back to the Mike Bell Real Estate Show on TalkZone.com. Here's Mike Bell. Welcome back, and we're with Otta Katz. With, she's a real estate attorney and litigator, and we're talking about uh, multiple offers and the pitfalls that you should watch out for. But let's talk about multiple offers. We're talking about if you're a buyer, you're talking about how you should just give your you should give a strong offer. And I, I gave my example of how I bought my house, and right. I still have the house. Right, right. Um, but uh, let's talk about uh, you know what if it, what if another offer has already been accepted? Okay. Um, you know that's that that could be a possibility, and um, maybe we want to talk about backup offers. Yes, I mean, is is all lost just because they? Put something into escrow. Is the uh, is the opportunity to buy that house, you know, kaput? I don't know what the cancellation rate is, and nobody really tracks this number. The way to track it, if you want, is you can pick up the phone and call every escrow officer in the world that you know and ask them what their cancellation rate because it doesn't show up on the MLS. Right. Because if you have a backup offer, they don't change the the uh, what's called the status on the multiple listing service to let you know that it fell out and they went back to somebody else. They just keep it in as what's called pending. Right. So the only way to really know is if you can – maybe you could talk to uh, managers of real estate offices or you can call escrow officers, but um, it's it's more than you think. And well, there's so many contingencies. I mean, by definition, most of these most of these deals, they um, – they have multiple contingencies that, you know, things can go wrong. You know, inspections could not be approved yep. and financing may not be um, secured. So those are, you know, two of the biggies, but there's other contingencies as well. And sort of by, you know, by definition, um, things could fall out because the contingencies aren't met. The deal hasn't really been done. Well, let's talk about contingencies. So the the big contingencies when somebody buys a house, they if they're going to get a loan, they have a contingency that they can get a loan. Right. And it could be 15 days, 30 days. It could be for the entire term of the uh, the contract. The other big one is going to be appraisal. The other big one is going to be inspection. Right. And, you know, within the financing contingency, that's, that's, that's a lot there mm-hmm. because in order to get the financing, banks themselves have various – uh, you know, boxes that they need to check off. They're going to get a title report. They're going to look at, you know, what that shows. And as well as the, the, the buyer and the buyer's agent need to take a good look at the, uh, the title report, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But, um, you know, there may be encumbrances, what we call encumbrances or, you know, different, different problems with the title, um, 
liens and, and things of that nature that need to be removed before financing can be secured. So there's a lot there, even just with the financing contingency. And that's, you know, and that's not all of it. Like you and, said. and everything's negotiable. Right. And it's usually negotiated up front. And the contract may say 17 days for all contingencies. It may say 30 days. It may say five days. They may have 10 days to do for an inspection contingency, but 30 days for an ins- uh, a loan and 20 days for appraisal. And you've got to be really cognizant of that, okay? Because um, when you, you know, as, as parties to a transaction, sometimes, you know, everything is pro forma and forms are put in front sure. of you and, you know, sign here and so forth. But um, as, as a party to the transaction, as an agent representing, um, you know, either the seller or the buyer, in this case, as we're talking about the buyer, yeah. Um, you know, these are, these are all subject to negotiation. You don't have to accept what's, what the, the pro forma language that's in the contract. You can right. designate, you know, how many days you think it's going to take and, and, um, and be realistic about it. Well, in our contract that we use in California, we have a boilerplate contract. And in, for all those contingencies, it's really the boilerplate says 17 days. Right. But right beside it, it says, or, or you check a little box and you can fill in the, and, Oftentimes, I get—I don't know where they got the 17 days. Maybe they did some kind of a survey. I don't know either. <laughs> that's a good question. But yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, that's sort of the default. Um, but depending on what the the climate is, um, sometimes it takes longer than that for financing. Um, certainly, with the stringent financing um, requirements that they have these days, it's a little harder to get a loan these days. Well, I had a transaction. It was a probate transaction in Alhambra about four months ago. We had eight offers on it. And everybody that was trying to buy the house, it was actually, I'm sorry, it was a duplex. Everybody that wanted to buy it wanted to get a loan. But the, the folks that actually won out that my sellers selected, they actually wrote one day for all their contingencies. But they still had to do an appraisal and they still had to get a loan. But what they wrote, what they put on the contract, it was not necessarily the highest price, but it was by far the strongest terms where we knew that these people were either going to uh, be able to move forward or not within one day. Right. And they decided to actually do it a physical inspection on day one, and then they they were they were happy. What they were really looking for major stuff like foundation issues and other issues. Um, but they were able to still get an appraisal and get a loan. We they can still do all that. I'd, be, just, I'd wonder how they could get a loan in one day though. <laughs> well, they can get, a, but they had just there's just a contingency. So if they couldn't get the loan, then their earnest money, the money that they put up. Uh, could be at risk. We got a caller, and I want to go back into what we're talking about right now, but we have a caller. Kent, how are you? Welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Thanks. Um, I have a question um, for your guest, please. Yes. Hi there. It's, hi. Um, it, it's a <clears throat> excuse me. It's a contract-type question. Uh, this, what happened was... Um, I recently put an offer in on a home in the Seattle area, okay. and my agent had told me that our offer was accepted because that's what the listing agent had told her. Um, didn't get any paperwork back, uh, but it was kind of a verbal thing where you know they liked the, the sellers liked the offer and. Uh, they had expressed that they're going to accept our offer. Well, as you can guess, it turned out that they didn't. Um, That's why you're calling the show a- <laughs> and talking to an attorney. <laughs> did we have a 
contract. I, we, you know, my wife and I wanted the house and, uh, we didn't get it. Is there any recourse? Do we have, was there a, a some kind of verbal contract because the, yeah. the agent has said they'd accept our offer? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I can imagine how disappointing that was, um, Kent, but unfortunately there's something called the statute of frauds and, um, you know, real estate transactions, real estate purchase and sale agreements must be in writing, signed by the parties. And unfortunately, if uh, if the acceptance wasn't in writing, I think you might be out of luck. Well, uh, pretty much answers my question. So thank yeah. you very much. I appreciate appreciate your time. You're Thanks so your welcome. Call. Good luck. Well, I think that's kind of sad. That and that happens a lot. And uh, I'm in situations oftentimes where the client says they're going to sign it and they haven't signed it. And I'm not going to tell the buyer's agent that it's happening or it's going to happen. I wait until it's in writing because I don't really feel like having a bad reputation or maybe even getting sued. I mean, because that's you're dealing with somebody's livelihood. They're, when people buy a house, they're buying a place to move to. Right. They're, they're buying an environment. They're buying a dream. They're buying... They're buying 10 years out. They're seeing their family there. That's right. why they're buying it. They're not buying it to store a bunch of stuff. And Most buyers of homes are not investors. Most buyers of homes are going to live there. Right. I mean, you know, the, the, the buyer's relying on that representation, right? They're, well, hopefully he hasn't done too much. If it's, you know, if, if it was a shorter time frame, um, you haven't made too many life changes, taking your kids out sure. of school and so forth. But, yeah, I mean, absolutely um, you want to make sure that a good agent, a good agent is going to understand the legal import of things like uh, having a document in writing and making sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and that whatever modifications, amendments you make along the way yeah. um, are going to be in writing, too, and they're going to be spelled out very clearly. Well, a verbal contract is only as good as the... As the paper it's on, right? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's one way of putting it. But when, when you're talking about buying and selling a home, you better have everything in writing. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah. That's too bad because that, that happens uh, often. T- it happens way too much. And what happens, I'll tell you the situation that probably happened with Kent may have happened is the seller said, yes, I'm going to take this offer for whatever. I don't even know how much he was going to buy a house for in Seattle. But what may have happened is... An hour later, he got a phone call from his agent saying, I know you said you're going to write that, you're going to sign that, but I got something better. Or one of the people that wrote an offer two days ago have decided to resubmit, and I got them to go up. That's why you have to be really careful as a real estate agent to not sit there and, and, and call buyer's agents and say, hey, congratulations, you're going to get the house. Because right. I, kinda, I, like to convey good inf- I like to convey good news. Convey it by your fax machine or your or your scanner. <laughs> exactly. Show them the signature. Show them the signature. I've been in the situation where if we have multiple offers or even just one offer, well, even just with one offer, and the seller says they're going to sign it, I've called them and say, did you sign it? Don't send it to me. I got something better. Because as soon as you show it to me, it's, it's notice. You're right. notified, you know, and you've sold it. So don't send anything to me. Don't fax anything to me. Don't email anything to me. Let me send this over to you. This happens a f- quite a few times a year right. on my transactions. And my sellers, you know, they, they'll make an, they can make an extra five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. Right. Once you've transmitted your acceptance to the buyer, then you've got a contract. Your acceptance in writing. Is that a binding contract? It's a binding contract. 
assuming that all the contingencies are met. Well, let's talk about, um, we were talking about earnest money. And why is it important that when you write an offer on a property that sellers like to see some money with it? Well, deposit money. Basically, you know, to put it bluntly, you're putting your money where your mouth is. You're skin in the game, letting them know that that you're a real bona fide purchaser. And I think this I don't know if there's necessarily a standard. Um, I like to see three percent, but there's some agents that just write offers with a five hundred dollar deposit to escrow. It really kind of depends. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've seen deals like that where it's been a hundred percent financing and you know, no money down and they've fallen apart and there's really no recourse, no liquidated damages for the seller. They, yeah. they basically have just wasted their time. Interesting. Yeah. I bet you see it all. I mean, especially as a litigator. And I'm sure you see some silly stuff that just should never come to your plate. And uh, it's just too bad. A lot of it, I'm, I'm sure, could be circumvented if they had a good real estate agent. Absolutely. That's a very, very key component. And just to understand that you're entering into a legally enforceable transaction that, you know, everything you put in writing, it has import and it's significant and you need to understand what you're signing and what you're agreeing to. What percentage of, uh, of your work could have been circumvented if your clients had a really good real estate agent? Almost all of it. <laughs> <laughs> Almost all of it. Oh. Uh, we're going into our last break. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Mike Bell Real Estate Show and we're going to be right back with you in a few minutes. And we're going to wrap it up. We actually have some pretty interesting stuff we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about as-is clauses. We're going to talk about required disclosures. And uh, right back. Thanks. Welcome back to the Mike Bell Real Estate Show on TalkZone.com. Here's Mike Bell. Welcome back to the show. This is Mike Bell. I'm here with Ada Katz, and she is a real estate litigator, and we're talking about some of the biggest misconceptions of buying and selling houses. And uh, we're in our last segment, so we have a lot to cover here. So we have an acceptance, okay? What's next? We have to do disclosures. Seller has to give disclosures. Absolutely, and that's a, that's a really key, key component of, um, of the deal. And it's a, it's a, it's an area where there's been a lot of litigation because what happens is the disclosures are made, mm-hmm. however they're made, mm-hmm. the deal goes through, the buy, the escrow closes, the buyer moves in, and all of a sudden they go to do some work in the attic or something and, or the basement and find out that there's major structural damage or mold and, um, intrusion that, uh, wasn't disclosed and, and there's there's your lawsuit right there. And a lot of times brokers even get dragged into it because sure. a broker also has an obligation to disclose what they know as well. The, the, the buyer's broker as well as the seller's broker. In terms of, uh, I mean, I don't know what the percentage of lawsuits are, but I would say a large number of them are probably have to do with non-disclosure of. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. That's yeah. what I'm saying. That 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 is a big um, that's a big issue. Um, and so, you know, it's always best, even though sometimes, you know, as a seller, you're anxious to sell your property yeah. and you're, the, the, it's, it's natural to want to make it look its best. But, um, but the, the most important thing to do is to disclose, disclose, disclose. Well, it's all going to, what I like to say, it's all going to come out in the wash. They're going to figure it out anyway. Right. You may as well be upfront with it. Right. In the very beginning, 
explain it, put it in writing. If they don't want to buy it, that's fine. They can move on to another house. Right. Oftentimes, you'd be surprised. I've been surprised. Where you're just up front in the very, very beginning, people will still buy the house. They'll just, you know, or they may try to negotiate the price down. Right, or, or and, but at least they're going in with their eyes open, exactly. and you're not, and they're not feeling later on down the line that, you know, someone's been less than honest with them, and and you know, either intentionally misrepresented something or just failed to mention something. Um, and and there's a, there's a whole slew of um, legally mandated. Um, yes. disclosures and they're you know different from state to state but um like in california you know you've got seismic hazard disclosures yep. and fire you know because we've Lead got lots paint of, right um there's mellow ruse there's um obviously all just the physical uh disclosures that that the seller has to make in terms mm-hmm. of you know things that are wrong or potentially wrong with the property and um there's a standard form that's filled out so if you've got a good agent that um, you know, has all the proper forms, all the updated forms. Um, you should you should be in, in fairly good shape as long as you fill them out correctly. What I love about being in Keller Williams, a large brokerage, but they uh, they have the resources to go out and find out what we should be doing, what we should be disclosing, and they're on top of it. We have I have what's called a transaction coordinator, and her job is actually to make sure we have the most up to date disclosures, and we're doing all the disclosures that are mandated that are required and that what sometimes what we maybe just should do. And we yeah. actually have extra stuff that was some, some of the state uh, templated disclosures we don't necessarily like. So we have our own disclosures that we've put together. And for example, like in Pasadena, there's a tree ordinance, 160 different trees are protected. That's not in the California association of realtors template, but we have our own. And what's what I find a um, um, little risky is um, using maybe a small broker or some, a mom and pop shop that doesn't have those resources. Right. And they're not, they, they don't know. They don't, they can't, they don't do all of that stuff. And it really open, probably opens themselves up to some, quite a bit of liability. Yeah, that's a reason I mean, why we have them. I mean, with disclosures, um, I, I would say that's one of the number one areas where you've just got to really, really, you know, I keep talking about dotting your eyes and crossing. You've got to really be, uh, yes. overly inclusive. Um, make sure you've you've got all your ducks in a row and you're you know more than honest. Um, and I always tell um, my broker friends and clients um, who are brokers, don't fill it out for the parties. Let the sellers fill their own disclosures out because you know later on down the line you don't want you don't want there to be any confusion as far as oh well you didn't tell me that or I didn't know or. You want the seller to be the one that's actually filling out the disclosures, and, and it's their house. It's their house. They're in the best position to know, um, you know, what's wrong with it. So I have client. This happens at least once a month, where a client says, "You know, I really don't want to disclose it. I'm just going to sell the house as is." That's not. That's not going to fly. <laughs> I don't know. Where the, I don't know where they get this mentality. I don't know where this came from. But people think that. As is means you don't have to disclose anything. Yeah, I think that, that they think as is means buyer beware, you know, enter at your own risk. But um, that that definitely does not mean that um, as is just means we're not going to fix anything. This is this is you know what we're disclosing to you and what you've discovered in your home in our in your physical inspection. That's that's what it is. We're not going to be fixing the chimney or doing anything. That's what as is means. It doesn't mean uh, you know you figure it out. Go in at your own risk. That's not what it means. And you cannot 
you cannot circumvent um, legally mandated disclosures, not in the state of California and probably not in any other state. Yeah, I don't think so either. There's no. also federally mandated disclosures like lead-based paint and so forth. Now, there's some things like, for example, if it, we don't have to go into this totally, but if there's a bank involved, if the bank foreclosed on the house, the bank never lived in it, the bank has no idea you know, about certain things. So, But there is still a duty on the agent to disclose what they know about what they, it. Yeah, what they can see uh, in, a, in a thorough visual inspection. Sure, sure. Um, but, yeah, I mean, foreclosure uh, situations where it's bank-owned is um, – is a, a slightly different scenario. So is a buyer required to inspect a property? You're not required to, um, but right. it would be a darn good idea to inspect what you're buying. you got to know what you're, you're getting. And I, I would strongly, strongly encourage anyone that's buying property to, to have a good um, independent home inspector carry out the inspection. Sometimes that person is not necessarily the one that's recommended to you by your agent. Yeah, exactly. Now, you know, towards the end of a transaction, this always comes up, is when people get, uh, they get something from the escrow company or the closing agent, ask them, how would you like to hold title? Joe and Mary Smith as community property, joint tenants, tenants in common. Um, there's a, in, at least in California, there's a myriad of, of uh, ways of hold, what's called holding title. Right, right. Um, and the advice I give them is to talk to somebody like you or a tax attorney because absolutely, absolutely, because it does have um, tax ramifications. It has some um, impact on liability exposure to estate creditors, planning. estate planning. Um, so yeah, it is definitely something where you need to talk to someone who understands. In California, um, some of the typical ways of, that properties is taken is um, sole ownership, which is usually mm-hmm. with a single person. If it's a married person, then the the spouse that's not going to be the sole owner has to sign a quick claim. Um, with uh, the other way is tenants in common, where you could split mm-hmm. up the ownership in whatever percentage you want, and it's completely um, independent ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, there's joint tenancy with right of survivorship. We with, could do a whole show on all. Yeah, that. I mean, there's there's community <laughs> property and community property states and. Um, and something called a living trust, which is probably the uh, best way to hold property. Ada, we have like an, a minute left, and I'm so sorry. I forgot to uh, – please give us your contact information yeah, if people I'm, want to contact you. I uh, practice out of beautiful San Marino, California. My telephone number is 626-844-9000, 626-844-9000. And you can find me on the Internet at www.adakatzlaw.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time here. That's um, it's been fun. This has been great. I've I've, uh, I've learned some stuff. Me I knew too. a lot of it, but I hope our listeners learned a lot. That's that's this that's it for this week's show. We're going to be back next week at the same time. And don't forget to visit my website, themikebellteam.com. Thank you for listening, and we're going to have some great future shows. I just signed another contract with TalkZone. I've been very happy with them, and I'm looking forward to a long. Uh, talk show career with them. I'm a full-time agent, part-time talk show host. Remember that. You've got a good talk show voice, Mike. <laughs> I think I think you're onto something. Hey, now. thanks. The opinions expressed in the Mike Bell Real Estate Show are solely those of the host and do not reflect the opinions of anyone at TalkZone.com, Keller Williams Realty, any board of realtors, or anyone for that matter. Always hire a real estate attorney when making real estate decisions. Do not try any of this at home.